I'm Sarah Elizabeth Smith, and this is the Theosophia Podcast, a platform for women's voices in theology. I apologize for getting this episode out a day late, y'all. I had a wild weekend of activities. I got to kick a field goal at an OU game to win $1,000 sponsored by Allstate. So thanks, Allstate and Sooner Athletics. That was pretty freaking awesome. And after the game, I went to the Oklahoma City Notre Dame Alumni Club game watch to see the Irish get a 44-22 win over Navy. And then Sunday morning, I got to teach a class on atonement theories. Then then I ran over to Oklahoma Christian to watch some of our kids in a prospect camp. And then finally, I ended the day at a Thunder game to watch our first win of the season over the Phoenix Suns. So if y'all ever wondered what a weekend was like in the life of a teacher and a coach, there it is. It's constant moving around. It's wild. But another thing that that really intensified the weekend for me and caused me to pause and, and slow down, especially Sunday night, was the ongoing news about the tragedy in Pittsburgh and at the Tree of Life Synagogue. As a minister and a theologian, my heart drops every time something like this happens. I can't I can't understand. I can't make sense of it. The hatred and the violence that's that's so clearly governing our world. It's it's heartbreaking and it's horrifying. And as a human who's just trying to survive and and live in this world and do good things, it's sickening and difficult for me that these types of events happen so much that our our culture seems to be accustomed to them as if it were just another headline. And I know it's just a way that we cope and try to, you know, placate these types of things just to survive the reality of our world, but um, it just seems like we have to grieve every single week for another event, and it's it's exhausting. And I don't know what to do, y'all. I really don't, but I do know I choose to, to put more peace and love and hope in the world, so I wanted to share some words from my presiding bishop, Michael Curry, that he put out yesterday, and he said... We must pray. We must pray for him. We must pray for the spirit of our nation, that a spirit of love and compassion and goodness and decency would pervade, and that the spirits of hatred and bigotry would be cast away. But above all, at this time, pray for those who have died and for their families and their loved ones. Pray for those who are wounded. Pray for the first responders. Pray for our brothers and sisters in the Jewish community. Pray for the Tree of Life Synagogue. Pray for the city of Pittsburgh. Pray for America. Pray for us all. And then go out and do something. Do something that helps to end the long night and helps to bring in the daylight. Visit a neighbor. Remind our Jewish brothers and sisters that they do not stand alone. Care for someone. Love. Stand for what is right and good. Then pray. And then act. So today, y'all, I'm, I'm really honored to share another episode with Rabbi Jill Hammer. This is one way I think we can build relationships across religious lines and and learn from other amazing humans. This is my little act to make the world just a little bit better, a little more loving, and to start tearing down the ignorant walls of anti-Semitic bigotry. I hope y'all love this conversation as much as I did. Rabbi Hammer shares about the Jewish tradition's history of speaking about God as woman. Here's Rabbi Hammer.
let's move into talking about God as woman, God as female. Um, you know, in the Christian tradition, we talk a lot about Sophia mm-hmm. and wisdom and using the Greek word, which is probably the most Christian thing to do. Um, given, you know, the Christian Testament was written in Greek. So mm-hmm. I use the word Sophia a lot to talk about, uh, you know, God imaged in the, the female personification of God. But the Jewish tradition is based mostly in Hebrew and talks about, I'm sure, this understanding of God a little differently. And I would just, I want that to be the kind of meat of our conversation in this part and what your work and your understanding um, of, of God fem- um, image this female means to you and what, what you've been chewing on and thinking about the last part of your life. Right. Or probably a lot of, a lot of your life. <laughs> I discovered God as female or God as divine feminine through the work of Jewish feminist poets. Mm. We're addressing God as she, you know, we're mm-hmm. addressing God as woman. Uh, and one of the things that I passionately wanted to know was whether this was only a contemporary phenomenon or whether Jews had ever done this. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are people writing about this, but I sure didn't hear about it in Hebrew school. So I went on my own quest to find that out. And I discovered, you know, as others have discovered, that there was a wealth of information about Jews experiencing the divine as feminine in, you know, in earlier generations. Uh, and you particularly see this in the Bible, you know, as you said, you know, in the figure of Sophia, who in the Bible is called Chochmah, and the Hebrew Bible is called Chochmah, wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is this mysterious feminine figure who shows up in the book of Proverbs and says, I'm the first being God created. And, you know, I was, I was witness to the acts of creation and I'm the teacher right. of humankind. And, uh, and she never explains who she is. Right. You know, but the language implies, you know, some relationship to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this mysterious figure, you know, becomes for Jews a kind of bouncing off point for talking about God as having some kind of female aspect or partner, uh, which is, of course, kind of edgy because of, you know, if you are committed to monotheism, right, you know, right. <laughs> you to have some kind of, you know, spouse or sister or daughter running around is, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, not, not on the program. Right. Uh, and nevertheless, you know, when you begin to look at Talmud era texts. So, you know, we're talking, you know, second, third, fourth century CE. They're talking about this uh, figure called Shekhinah, which means indwelling. Mm-hmm. That is some kind of tangible thickening of God's presence. And at first, it's not really personified. It takes a feminine uh, pronoun, uh, but it's not really personified. Mm. And then in other texts, um, it's described as being more like a person. So the Shekhinah is described as wailing when the temple is destroyed and, you know, going into exile with her people um, and, uh, you know, dwelling in, you know, certain places where people are studying Torah when people are praying. So you begin to get this sense of, uh, you know, a more personified entity. And then later on, uh, you get this um, interest in the Kabbalah, a very profound interest in imagining God as having multiple faces. Mm. some of which are female. Mm-hmm. And so for them, Shekhinah becomes a name for their idea 
that God has this multiple layering, that God is, is composed in multiple layers, if you will, you know, multiple aspects. And the aspect that is most closely intertwined with the earth and with the natural world and with human beings uh, is uh, this feminine aspect called Shekhinah. Mm-hmm. And so they have, you know, a love affair with this, you know, this uh, feminine character. And, you know, hundreds of years later, Jewish feminists come along and say, wow, look, you know, here's Shekhinah, you know, here is our feminine uh, way of looking at God. You know, and even that has to be worked with because the Kabbalists, you know, because they have their own gender biases, you know, they write those biases into their ways of understanding masculine versus feminine. Uh, and so, you know, we're understanding Shekhinah differently today than they understood her then. Uh, and what I like to say about it is that this isn't about naming particular qualities as, as feminine or, you know, it's, it's really about recognizing that God erupts for us in spontaneous ways that are different for every person. And some of those ways are gendered and some of those gendered ways are female. Mm-hmm. And when you make a rule that says God can't look like that, mm-hmm. you know, you're suppressing the religious imagination, yes. uh, which, you know, has negative effects right. uh, on people and, you know, on their relationship to the divine. And you're not allowing for the wisdom of that image to come through uh, because there's wisdom in many of these divine images. And, you know, and this one is, you know, um, of particular interest to and, and, and provides a particular kind of devotion for many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people shouldn't be prevented from looking at God in this way. Uh, and, and when we speak about God that way, and when we create liturgy about God that way, um, in that way and in you know, other ways that, uh, that include marginalized people, you know, non-gendered ways, for example, you know, that at least ideally leads to a more uh, liberated community. Right, because none of us are walking around thinking that person is more like God than me, mm-hmm. or that person can have a more intimate relationship with God than me because of my gender or because of some other aspect of their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, rather we have a sense that you know our relationships to divinity are um, are unique. You know, are multiple, and uh, you know we all have some experience and wisdom to contribute to this conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I want to say that, you know, in the ancient Near East, you know, when the biblical culture was being formed, you know, there were all of the aspects of male and female deity. Oh, yeah. By and large, the Bible kind of narrows down. Right. You know, into an image that's more or less male, though it has some multi-gendered aspects. You know, it's more or less male. Right. Um, but it doesn't stay that way because people don't want it that way. Right. You know, people need, you know, many people need uh, a multi-gendered view of deity. And of mm-hmm. course, in the Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you need something and it's being repressed, you know, particularly repressed in order to create the idea, you know, that the feminine is not divine or not powerful, you know, or, or is, uh, you know, an imp- inappropriate way to think about the sacred, you know, that, that has historical consequences. Uh, and we're still living with those consequences. Mm. Trying to heal them, one hundred percent, absolutely. Um, so you said, did did rabbinical school for you talk about this much? Or are um, there particular schools that'll talk about it more, like Reformed well, versus conservative? Or there are schools that will talk about it more. Um, you know, my my seminary, the Academy for Jewish Religion, you know, has a class in you know in uh, gender and and uh, you know and discusses theology in this way um the uh 
Aleph ordination program, which is a program of the Jewish renewal movement, which is a, a kind of mystical contemporary liberal movement that I affiliate with. Uh, you know, they talk about this at their seminary. Um, when I was in school, it was certainly acknowledged that, that this was true if you were to ask somebody, uh, although it was not, um, it was not emphasized. Mm-hmm. And I would say that probably many of my professors would not have considered it to be particularly important. Mm. Um, you know, and, and different professors differed, you know, at every, you know, at every academic institution, you have different people with different opinions and some professors would sort of take the gender stuff head on, you know, and say, you know, we can look at this text, but we also have to understand that it, you know, it has oppressive aspects. Uh, and other people really didn't want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. You know, and experiencing being in a classroom where someone didn't want to talk about that, and instead of viewing the oppression as the problem, viewed you as the problem for bringing right. it up, <laughs> uh, that was a formative experience for me. Mm. You know, and I think that the seminary which I was ordained has changed some on this issue. You know, but at that time, they were still really struggling with how to integrate women into their learning environment. You know, mm. and sometimes there was this attitude of, you are the problem. You know, if you weren't here, we wouldn't have to talk about this. Right, right. Um, and, you know, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's important for us to work to change stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Do you think the Jewish, Jewish theology has evolved in its understanding of God pertaining to women being able to image the divine? Is, you know, Imago Dei an important anthropological concept uh, in, in Jewish theology? Yeah. Um, you know, this idea we would say, B'Tselem Elohim, right? That everyone is created in the image of God. And a lot of Jewish liberal, particularly liberal theologians, although uh, this is a term that's used by everybody, you know, but particularly Jewish liberal theologians talk about Selim as Elohim as a way of saying that everyone is, you know, everyone is valuable, everyone is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we shouldn't disparage, you know, other human beings uh, for their diversity uh, because you know, all people are made in the image of God. And particularly this was uh, an image that came up a lot uh, when... Um, different Jewish seminaries and communities were talking about uh, sexual orientation mm-hmm. and make full room for people who, you know, who are queer, right. Who are gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgendered. Uh, one uh, image that was brought up was, well, people are created in the image of God and we shouldn't uh, dismiss people for an aspect of their identity, you know, which is also godly. Uh, and, uh, so it's absolutely something that people, uh, talk about, uh, and different, you know, different Jewish theologians may see it somewhat differently, but it's a very important Jewish concept. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that it's not, I, I want to be clear that it's not that Judaism has ever said that women are not human beings, you know, or right, that right. like it, that's not, you know, that's, you know, that wasn't something, you know, most even medieval Jewish theologians would have said, you know, it's, um, it, it, it was more a question of, you know, this is a person with a defined role in our community, you know, uh, and they need to connect with that role, you know, versus more of an exploration of, you know, what are the roles that women can have in the community, and, you know, and, you know, imagining gender as a category that doesn't necessarily have to define, you know, who we are, or what, what our interests are. Right. Or how we're treated uh, in ritual space or mm-hmm. legal space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of times, you know, theologians, you know, argue the natural order of things or um, 
just looking at the biblical text of, you know, the patriarchs and the male, you know, headship of everything that was going on from religious life to economic life and community um, that, like you said, there are, there have been defined roles in society, um, but is, can women do these same types of roles and still, you know, I mean, that's one of the biggest reasons in the Catholic church, women can't be a priest because they don't image God as God proposably was as came down in male form and in Christ as it were, you know, um, are there similar types of arguments because of the patriarchal kind of history of the faith? Well, I'll say two things about that. The first thing I'll say is that one of the things I love about my job is that I get to poke holes in this entire narrative. (laughs) I get to look at characters like Miriam and and Devorah and the Bible, Mm -hmm. or, you know, even characters like Asnat Barzani or Seti of Zaragoza, who are, you know, medieval and, you know, pre-modern women who are leading in the Jewish community. Uh, So, you know, I get to poke holes in the entire narrative that, you know, this is a completely contemporary phenomenon for women to have leadership. Like, it's just not. Mm-hmm. You know, in communities that, you know, that claim that their, you know, traditional you know, gender roles are separate, uh, it's just not like that. You know, mm-hmm. women have always exercised leadership. Um, I wouldn't say that in Jewish tradition, you know, there's been an argument around, you know, women can't um, lead because of, you know, their relationship to God's image. It has more to do with, uh, you know, the, this idea of prescribed roles. Uh, for example, Maimonides, uh, who's a really important, uh, you know, Jewish uh, theologian and, and, uh, and legalist, you know, in, uh, um, speaks about, um, he says, you know, based on other Jewish texts, he says, you know, we don't appoint a woman to leadership. Like, it's just, we just don't do that. It's not, you know, there's no biblical precedent for, for doing stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're ignoring a variety of biblical precedents in which women are... Uh, right, you know. right. No, but Maimonides is living in, you know, in, in Cairo in the Middle Ages, you know, and, you know, for him, you know, women don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, he, that his is not the only historical Jewish context. So, um, you know, there are, you know... Though I am mostly uh, insulated from people who are making those arguments because I live in the liberal Jewish world where nobody right. talks about this. Like right. this is not a thing anymore to say mm-hmm. that women can't do things. Mm-hmm. You know, in the beginning of my rabbinical education, there were still questions about whether women, for example, could serve as witnesses in a court of Jewish, uh, sort of in a Jewish court, you know, which might be convened for, you know, a matter of divorce or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and those questions have largely been resolved in, you know, in the communities that I move in. Mm-hmm. You know, there are other communities, you know, more orthodox communities or more right-wing communities where these conversations are still happening. Um, but there's, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of resistance, you know, in, the, you know, in, in all Jewish communities to uh, restrictions, uh, you know, on uh, people's human rights. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I think that I mean, religious communities are entitled to their own independence. You know, we're not going to legislate that people have to be egalitarian in their religious lives. Uh, right. But ultimately, I think it is a human rights issue. Right. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Would it be unusual to talk about God 
in the feminine in um in in the temple or in services and rituals it depends a lot on which community in general okay. the answer is yes uh i belong to a jewish community where people not only call god she but say goddess sometimes i mean i, I live in a wonderful jewish community where you know god is multi-gendered and there are other communities like that some communities are quite strict about speaking about God only in uh, gender-neutral terms, mm-hmm. uh, you know, without uh, gendered pronouns. Although you can't really do that in Hebrew. Hebrew doesn't have gender-neutral pronouns. Mm-hmm. Uh, so often the Hebrew is masculine, but the English is gender-neutral. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, depending on your perspective, that may or may not be enough for you. Um, and then there are plenty of other communities where God is still he, you know, and exclusively he. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, it's changed a lot in the last 30 years, I would say. And people have really experimented with trying, well, what is it, how does it feel if we do this? How does it feel if we do that? Right. Part of why the Kohenet Institute exists is to give people an address to say, well, I want to learn more about this. I want to right. understand what's it like to experience God like this? You know, how mm-hmm. does it change our, our religious experience? How does it change our ethical life to experience God this way? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's unfamiliar for people. You know, mm-hmm. for, you know, for many people, religion is a source of comfort because it's familiar. Absolutely. And when you're introducing something that may not be so familiar, uh, you know, you, you want to give people an opportunity to understand, you know, what is this all about? You know, what does it have to do with me? You know, how might it connect to my life? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that is uh, successful about, you know, some of the ways that I pray in the, you know, and my co-founders, you know, Taya Shear and, you know, our our co-teacher Shoshana Jedwab, you know, when we get together and pray with people, we make it very exciting with lots of great music and, you know, and dancing and, you know, lots of embodied practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when people are feeling like this is amazing, you know, <laughs> then the, you know, then the language is, uh, which may already be appealing, you know, you know, becomes quite natural. Right. Right. I don't, you know, for me anymore, I really dislike male pronouns um for god but my tradition uh, the episcopal church is very catholic anglican roots so the traditional male noun is used or pronoun um and i but i know many other of my my friends female friends especially who just like choke at hearing god the father god he 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 um it's just it's such a oppressive understanding of god to them and it's just so difficult um yeah yeah it and this was you know often my reaction and part of why feminine god language became so important to me and you know being able to experience god in the female without mm-hmm. feeling or without feeling like it had to be a secret that was important, you know, to me and, and the communities that I'm part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that I've discovered is that not only does it prevent you from experiencing God as mother or, you know, in other ways that are powerful, you know, in the feminine, but it actually prevents you from experiencing God as father. Mm-hmm. Because when you're feeling like this influence, this, when you're feeling like this image is being forced on you. Right. You know, and kind of hammered into you, then it's, you know, it's not at all an appealing image. Mm-hmm. So, but for many people, God as Father is a very moving image, and it can be. And it's hard to experience it that way when people are saying, well, this is the only way that you're allowed to see God. Mm-hmm. Um, it's when you give people more freedom, 
uh, to experience God as spirit or as father or as mother or as beloved, uh, you know, then there's more opportunity for people to, um, to not feel so um, resistant and mm-hmm. uh, closed. Mm-hmm. You know, and then God can become something that's um, exciting rather than something that's really stultifying. Right. And I think, too, just any sort of anthropomorphic ideologies about God are so limiting and just bog people down. And I just see the work you're doing in the feminist thought and, you know, thinking about, you know, the divine in nature, right, is something that's living, something that's moving and spirit. I I just think we, especially in the Christian tradition, we just don't talk about God as spirit Mm. hardly at all. Um, even though that's what we've got, you know, as Christians, Jesus isn't here, right? Like the man is not walking around anymore, but the spirit of God is what we believe. The Holy ghost is, is present and moving literally, um, in the water, right? In the waves, in the atmosphere is this connective energy that to me is so much more helpful and useful in thinking about the, the Holy and interacting with the Holy as is, you know, assuming that God is an actual person in the sky, right? Yeah, this is really where I've come to, is that, you know, the ecological you know, theology movement is really where I want to live, because mm-hmm. when you see God in the universe, then the universe becomes something sacred and not something that you kind of just ignore right. you know, in favor of abstract theology. Right. Uh, when the real is God for you, then you have to deal with the real. Mm. Uh, and I think that's redemptive and absolutely necessary. I do want to say that for many people, you know, anthropomorphizing God makes God more intimate and understandable. Sure. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that as sure. long as one understands that, you know, you can't reify those images. Sure. You know, they're going to shift as, you know, the spirit shifts. Um, and I, I do, I do find the, you know, the image of spirit or even more than the image of spirit for me now is really the image of body, you know, mm. of God as body of the world, you mm. know, as uh, you know, as body of the divine, uh, mm-hmm. for me that's a really powerful place to live, mm-hmm. and it reminds me of my responsibility to preserve what's real mm-hmm. on this planet. Does this understanding of God, um, not only as as female, but as many faces, like you said, I love that. Um, does it inform the way you? exegize the sacred texts mm-hmm. yeah absolutely uh, because i mean when for example when i was sitting and translating psalms uh for the uh translation project that i did for my home community uh, to mm-hmm. retranslate the psalms in the friday night prayer book mm-hmm. uh I could feel the nature images in the Psalms differently than previous translators because for me, mm. they, were, they were images of living nature and of divine presence. Mm-hmm. You know, when the, you know, the text is talking about rivers clapping their hands, you know, and, uh, you know, soaring mountains and, you know, and the ways that, you know, the, that the Psalms speak about nature, you know, I felt tremendous kinship with that. Right. You know, in a way that allowed me to experience and 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 speak about the text in 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 new uh, new ways. Um, it it definitely uh, makes me work with 
biblical text differently. I mean, starting with how do you translate Yudhevadhe? You know, how do you translate, you know, what's usually translated as Lord, you know, in the biblical text? It doesn't mean Lord. You know, the, the, uh, the root of Yudhevadhe, of uh, the divine four letter name, is, means something like being or becoming mm-hmm. or existing. You know, it certainly doesn't mean Lord. You know, that's a that's a later way of uh, of understanding and, and reading that word. Uh, so, you know, starting with that, my uh, one of my teachers, Rabbi Arthur Waskow, talks about the name of God as being the breath of life. That if you try mm. to pronounce that name, what you get is breath. I mm. love that. Oh. I, I've always appreciated the the four letter name for God in the Jewish tradition. It there's so much mystery wrapped up in that too, that it, it just, it kind of melts away all of our constructions of God mm-hmm. and just says, you know, I am who I am. Right. I mean, it's just, that's more helpful to me, I guess, and leaving it kind of open and mysterious and ever changing and moving um, a much more helpful place to enter into my spirituality. Um, and like you said, not that the other ways of, you know, interacting with God are any less value valuable than that. But I, I feel like there's a deep tradition in the Jewish uh, faith and practice that has done a better job at that in my perspective of studying Judaism than the, the Christian tradition has. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. Is there any other final thoughts you have to talk about Shekinah? Mm. I'm not saying that right. Say, Can you do the the ch? The ch. Shekinah. 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 You need it for chokhmah, also for wisdom. That one's even Chokhmah. Yeah. Chokhmah. Yeah. yeah. So the first thing you have to learn in Hebrew school is how to, how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> well... I feel called to, to, to offer gratitude to my foremothers, not only my ancient you know, foremothers and forebears who uh, thought and wrote about and experienced the sacred feminine, but my forebears in the feminist movement and in the Jewish feminist movement, you know, my teacher, Alicia Ostreicher, and poets like Marge Piercy, and, and uh, you know, theologians like Ju- Judith Plaskow and Rachel Adler, and, and uh, you know, so many other people, um, Savina Tubal, uh, uh, who really uh, had the courage to speak in this way, mm-hmm. you know, and to refuse the uh, the boundaries that they had been given. Uh, really, I couldn't have come to it without them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I feel you know, really grateful to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I feel so excited about the possibilities for liberatory ways of being in the world and being with spirit. And I'm excited about our conversation because it reminds me of the possibilities of moving uh, even beyond the faith boundaries and having these conversations with one another, you know, in, uh, you know, in in interfaith and multi-faith ways. Uh, And I think that's also a good way for us to, uh, you know, weave a, weave a more integrated web of life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll say one more thing. Um, I want to say something about the necessity of dialogue between 
sort of text-based and, and uh, Western text-based traditions like Judaism and Christianity, mm-hmm. you know, and, and of course, um, you know, Islam, although, you know, maybe, you know, we wouldn't call that uh, Western. Uh, I think it's important for us to think about dialogue, not only among sort of monotheistic text-based traditions, but with indigenous traditions. Mm. You know, that may or may not define themselves as monotheist or text-based, that really the deity and divinity and spirit they're experiencing is, and that, you know, their culture celebrates uh, is just as valuable to world theology. Mm, And there's a historical bias, you know, to put it mildly, you know, against such traditions, you know, to see them as more primitive or as, you know, somehow you know, less uh, indicative of religion because, you know, they right. don't take this model of, you know, having a sacred text around, you know, which people gather, um, you know, when God looks like a particular thing. Yeah. Um, I think when we explore our own uh, organic roots, you know, when we look at our own organic roots as religious traditions, we find that we're not that dissimilar from mm-hmm. I should say other indigenous traditions around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to remember to include those traditions in our conversations mm-hmm. um, and those people in our conversations um, and not sort of stick to our, you know, Jewish Christian or Jewish Christian Muslim, you know, dialogue context sure. uh, but to really uh, spend some time talking to everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm in my, you know, in the state of Oklahoma, we have, home to a ton of indigenous tribes Mm. tons and that is definitely on my on my list to get connected and a lot of my kids that I teach and coach are um native so getting to know their families and hearing about their spiritual practices has just been wonderful and I can't wait to to get some folks on the podcast for sure but um thank you so much Rabbi Hammer it's just been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you and i I adore the work you do and I uh, look forward to continue to watch what you're doing and hopefully stay in touch and be, uh, be connected. So it was my pleasure and please do stay in touch. Thank you, Rabbi Hammer, once again for taking the time to share with our community about the Jewish lens on all things God and the Divine Feminine. We will continue to pray for you and our Jewish friends, brothers, and sisters during this time of great grief and sadness. This is just the beginning of an ongoing relationship with the Jewish voices in the world, so thank you so much for agreeing to be on the first. Thank you so much for agreeing to be the first rabbi on Theosophia. What a treat. Join us next week, y'all, for another rich conversation and check out Theosophia on all the social media platforms and listen to us on iTunes and Radio Public, which is a free app that doesn't require a login or an account. So check them out at Radio Republic in the App Store or RadioRepublic.com. Have a wonderful week, y'all. Peace.